This is the Diabolique Radio Show, and I am your host, Stephen Slaughterhead, and that's my real name. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about Diabolique, Henry Georges Clouseau's 1955 thriller that amazed American audiences. They were truly affected by this film, so... My guest, David Clare, and I are excited to talk about this film. David, as you know from prior introductions, was the creative director at the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts, and he was also a film professor at Babson College here in Massachusetts. David, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us in our conversation about Clouseau's 1954 film, Les Diaboliques. And uh, it, for my uh, generation, uh, it was an essential part of my growing up. You said that you'd seen it three times in the theater when it came out. Four times. Four times. Well, the thing is, it, it was a horror film. It got a lot of attention when it came out uh, because the plot with the, the two women plotting the death of the husband, but knowing there's the, you know, I'm assuming people have seen the film. Mm. So about it. So that, you know, well, I think twist. I want to, I just want to interrupt here. I think if you, if people listening to this haven't seen the film, they need to know that we're probably going to spoil it because I, I don't think it's going to, it's really possible to get into an in-depth conversation about this film without getting towards what happens at the end. And this is one of the first big films that had a twist ending and it, right. and it pretty much ties into everything because the first, you can never see the film again the same way you did the first time you saw it. But when you watch it the second time, it becomes you know, more of a science in a way. And it would be really hard to have a conversation without revealing some things towards the end of the movie. So sorry, David, I interrupted. That's right. I mean, it, it's, uh, it is that great twist ending, but you want to just go through the process. But yeah, I did see it a lot. Um, I had just turned 16 when it came out. And um, the Legion of Decency, I was, went to, was going to a Catholic school and studying French, and I wanted to see the film because I happened to like thrillers. Mm. So my father um, w went to ask the permission of my French teacher to see it, and he said, I could see it if I went with my father. Now, it was labeled B, morally objectionable in part for all, and I think not just a question of, there were two things. Uh, one, the sort of sleazy atmosphere, the sleazy morality of the people who are plotting the death, uh -huh. and B, there was uh, the see-through nightgown of uh, Vera Clouseau. But um, that being said, I went with my father to see it and got the appropriate scares in ways that I had never been scared in a movie Do, You before. know, it, it's still effective that way today. I, having watched this uh, just a couple of weeks ago, was just shocked about how effective one of those ending shots was it if one lets this film work its way you, you know you, you'll you'll get the scares that you don't you you'll get that feeling that you just don't get with movies today well it was great and the kind of thing that you wanted to do why people go off to drive-ins and they go to see horror films today um i went under the illusion i was a serious student of french and so my father and i went and yeah i got to see a french movie on the other hand, I'd just gotten my driver's license, and over the coming weeks, I took three separate women to see the film, where I knew the exact moment they would scream and jump into my arms. And that's part of the fun of Diabolique. Uh, it isn't just a question of how, how it's, its place in film history, but as a cultural phenomenon in the mid-50s, 
um, it was certainly that. You just mm -hmm. go for the kind of people, reason people go to see Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, you, you went for basically, uh, I mean, apart from the fact that it's simply a good film, but as something to go to and to see in a group environment where everybody screams at the same moment. Mm -hmm. You don't get that experience watching uh, in, on Netflix. Well, I just saw Paranormal Activity a couple days ago, and it's far from the same type of... It's far from uh, Diabolique in terms of what Diabol uh, Les Diabolique is, is a film that um, was made during an era where sets were populated with objects that just represented the character. You know, it was a, it was a very busy screen. It was... Um, it, it was that kind of mise-en-scene that they were going for, some stuff that, uh, very, very populated ambiance. Whereas um, in uh, Paranormal Activity 3, which got some pretty good scares, you know, you, you know sort of the uh, loud noises and jumps and that kind of thing, it's populated with objects, but it's comparatively minimalist. Whereas Les Diabolique is, um, it's populated by things that say things about the character's and uh, it's it's a busy movie. At the same time, ironically, not being because the camera movements are so practiced and the staging, the depth of the staging in Diabolique is just very precise. Well, the, the yes and no, because some of the things that work the best in Diabolique are the, the is the use of off-screen sound. The idea that you hear the typewriter going right. someplace. Right. Uh, and so the, outside the frame, mm -hmm. there's a constant sense of menace. Um, and so you have those scenes where, you know, Vera Clouseau hears something or might see a light flash someplace. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's something outside there. That's one of the things I think is one of the, one of the great things about the making, the way the film was made. Uh, it certainly... In many ways, an old school film in terms of the way there is attention to you know the theatrics. On the other hand, what um, and say for example, years later, and the film's such a model for other filmmakers. Jack Clayton in The Innocence would do something very similar. Deborah Carr being uh, the nanny for two children who may or may not be possessed by evil spirits. Um, she hears things, and there you had the use of cinemascope. And here she is in her white nightgown holding a candle and all kinds of things maybe just outside the frame. It's, it's very interesting that you mention that because with Diabolique, I don't think there's a, a moment where Clouseau is, is lying to us as, as the viewer. I think he's telling us, he's showing us visual truths. But it's intriguing to think that the real deceptions are happening just off frame, just around the corner. In other words, we're seeing this from this film from Christine's point of view, mm -hmm. and Christine is. Um, um, I guess, I guess if we wanted to do a short summary. She is the wife of uh, who actually owns the boarding school, wherein this uh, uh, thriller takes place, and the fellow who runs it, uh, the fellow who runs it, uh, played by Paul Maurice, is a despicable human being. D d disgusting person. It's very well established, so that when he is you know, killed at the beginning, it uh, uh, towards the beginning, it's it's we aren't so put off by the uh, by the two women who um, 
to do this. And in fact, we uh, were emotionally attached to him. Um, but uh, my point being is, is that the movie is really sort of like uh, told in a, a periscopic kind of way from her point of view. We see these things happened uh, as they're revealed. It, and, it, and it makes for, in a sense, a, a claustrophobic uh, environment. But, um, but it's really Clouseau just playing with the audience in a really fun way, and, 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 and using cinema's ability to, to manipulate people by, by highlighting certain sounds and lighting effects. I mean, it, there are moments in this movie where he gets very dire, and it almost becomes like German Expressionism. Yeah, he never... Uh, the consistency in his work, he's always an, a good filmmaker, um, but of the films that I've seen of his, the closest one that comes to an atmosphere to this is a 1942 film he did called The Raven. Uh, lots of angles, you know, lots of light and dark and, 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 and things like that. This is a, a marvel of, say, atmosphere. Uh, but you have that the boarding school, which is sort of close to gothic. Yeah. And, uh, and it, 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 it works. Was the, can, maybe you can help me here. Was The Raven the film that he made that enraged the French people? Yes. As now, why it did, I don't remember, but it did. The um, um, uh, German film company, right. and uh, I think it had some sort of anti-French sensibility. I haven't seen it, but he... I don't remember basically that. Basically was barred true. from making films for three, four years after that. Right. And uh, he was not a member of the resistance. He was just a, he was a filmmaker. Um, but he's back in full... Well, he came back pretty strongly uh, with uh, Wages of Fear before yeah. this and with, uh, uh, which was remade as, what, Sorcerer? Is that right? Yes, the Friedkin with, film. Uh, Love it. Yeah, good Friedkin film. Um, but didn't quite pack the raw existential tension of the original. Uh, but it was still a very good film. But in Diabolique, even though he doesn't do as Hitchcock does, a very strong use of the point of view camera, you still get enough of that, and you still have with the tracking shots of uh, Christine, reverse tracking shots of Christine, mm -hmm. we get enough of a sense to identify with her and try to and get inside what it is she's thinking and feeling in relation to whatever may or may not be happening around her. Would you, I want to say that Clouseau's films were, well, as in the case of L'Establique, was was not a social commentary. It was an entertainment. But you having seen or, or being more familiar with the filmmaker than I am, would you say that uh, um, his films generally aren't social commentary? He, 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 he wanted to make what was a Saturday night movie, something that you just you, you go to, to 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 have fun. Well, that certainly is true here. That's what I said. I took three different women. Uh, during the month after I went with my father to see it, and it was definitely Saturday night date film. It was great material that way. And then the only film that really hit that stride in the next years was Psycho, which, of course, was um, yet another film you couldn't reveal the ending of, or, you know, the surprise twist. The, uh, on the it other played thing, into too, the same marketing thing as uh, Listia Bidi. Yep. And when Psycho came out in 1960... You know, now when a thriller comes out, it, you know, there's always, you know, the best film of its kind since Psycho. Mm -hmm. When Psycho came out, 
it was the best film of its kind since Diabolique. I'm led to wonder if Hitler. <laughs> I'm led. I'm led to. You have to cut go that. ahead. I've made some. I've made some grievous audio mistakes before in the, in the past, Dima. Uh, uh, but that I'm led to. I'm led to wonder if Hitchcock. Hitchcock and Hitler. Okay. I'm. I'm led to wonder. Well, I was thinking from Hitler to Caligari, but okay. Anyway, I'm led to wonder if Hitchcock considered Cousteau a um, competitor, not so much a contemporary. Well, that could be true if Clouseau wasn't a genre director, uh, just because he did That's two films right. He never back really back. devoted himself to genre. No, Hitchcock because did. Um, stylistically, Wages of Fear is different. Uh, it's much more set in sunlight. The uh, much more use, much more use of a, of you know outdoor sets with natural light, and so and even though both are suspense thrillers, uh, but there's not other than that uh, and the presence of the director's wife in both films, mm-hmm. whose beauty Vera, is Vera Cluzo, yeah, yeah, Vera Cluzo, her cleavage and uh, wages of fear is one of the noteworthy things of that film. The uh, just as her see-through nightgown. Yeah, as it is in uh, Les Diablos. So we can do an tourist thing on that. Uh, is he exploiting his wife? Well, my question there was, how does that get by the censor? Where is it rated? And I mean, that that, that was some pretty obvious. Uh, let me just put it this way: you can see her nipples. Yeah, you can. Um, and had it been an American film, it couldn't have happened in 1955. Uh, this is why, where uh, like art cinema showed Diabolique. I mean, I saw this as something called the Roth Silver Spring Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And um, and the art house chain, this is long before we think of art houses the way we do now. The art house, when I was an adolescent, I'd go to the, quote, art cinemas because they would show films where you could see a hell of a lot more than you could in a regular theater. So in 1957 or 58, 58 it was, when um, Brigitte Bardot and A God Created Women came out, it played at a, quote, art theater. And they weren't subject to the same restrictions. And so those of us who were horny adolescents uh, would definitely go to see the art films. And there were a lot of examples of that in the 50s. Early Ingmar Bergman, for example, Monica was done as well summer with Monica was done as Monica Hmm. and they cut out some of the dramatic stuff just kept the sex scenes in uh in summer interlude which is renamed in the United States smiles of summer illicit interlude now this is a illicit interlude what happened is that the distributor of the film took some um took a couple of you know models uh, and shot long shots of them running, running naked on the Jersey Shore and intercut it with Ingmar Bergman's film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sawdust and Tinsel got re- renamed as The Naked Night. Now, but Diabolique got, had a little bit more uh, critical credibility because it was like a big-time shocker. It played forever at the art houses. But the culture of that, long before the French New Wave and Fellini and, 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 and Ingmar Bergman hit with you know, things like the Seventh Seal. Uh, this is before then. Uh, you know, the whole culture of going to see a foreign film is just quite different. But for a lot of people, these films represented, you could, you could get away with more 
And uh, and and uh, Diabolique is a film that in the United States a lot of people went to go see outside the art house film because it actually got into the mainstream theaters. Got into it, yeah. That's because it did so well at the art house theaters. Mm. And uh, obviously, people want to get a blockbuster. Um, but there, there. Now, one of the things, you know, the film is known as a shocker, and a. Um, but apart from the plot twists that go on in the film, there's a lot of irony in the film. And what's so interesting, you know, you have the um, the husband being so bad. You've got the the wife uh, being. So frail. The damsel in distress, and she's got that heart condition and, and she, all of that she stuff. She has this look of such distress in her eyes. And, you know, those eyes are incredible. Yeah. The, uh, and, and at the then, opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Miss Signore. Simone Signore is cool and haughty. She, for opening shot of her, has sunglasses. I mean, she's, she's, mm -hmm. she's distant. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, you got this, you know, this triangular situation there. And so you've got... But the two women, I know that in the book on which it's based is a hint. Right. I think I think I know what you're going to say. In, yeah, of in course. In the book, uh, wherein I don't know if it was the book specifically that this was based on. I think I, I wrote the title down here somewhere. Uh, she who was no more. Um, okay. Uh, by Pierre Boulou and Thomas Narjak. And uh, Hitchcock had actually wanted to acquire the novel, but Clouseau was able to get to it first. Um, they plot to kill a man in that movie, and the ultimate reveal is is that it's it's out of their love for each other, their lesbianism. Okay, that, that's it. There is um, there is a not. It's I, never I still I would I would go as far to say that I still think that that uh, a lesbian element survives in this film because if could we just go right to the end well Simone Singer is almost when, butch well you one could make the case that if Christine is still alive as as the young boy has said to um one of the people at the at the school that uh, after he broke a window where to get his slingshot Christine gave it back to me this of course being after we saw her die mm -hmm. so if she's still alive then one one could have taken the plot one step further you know, it's the kind of thing that Hitchcock would have done. It's not that Clouseau didn't do a great job with it, but it's the kind of thing that, especially at this point in Hitchcock's career, when he's doing the, the complexity, say, of Vertigo, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which made three years after this, uh, where you're you're really all the way through this film, you're on the edge of figuring out what are the relationships here. And uh, we we know so little about them, yeah. And yet, so much is presumed visually by what Clouseau chooses to show us. Like we can read into Signore's character by her uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses, by her the, the the really neat trim of her wardrobe, yeah. Which is complete irony to the when they go back to. Uh, um, uh, the town, I forget the name, and uh, to, the, to an old apartment that she was writing, and it's, it's in, uh, the place hadn't been fixed up for years. I mean, the, envi the environment which she surrounds herself with does not match the way she dresses. It's, uh, it's a visual irony. And she was known, she was a big star. I mean, she gets top billing in this film. Mm -hmm. um, she's certainly known, and uh, she was a hot seductress in, in, in lots of films. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, would continue to be so for several years afterwards. She, she got an Academy Award nomination, I think, for being uh, Lawrence Harvey's lover in Room at the Top. But there is a character here that I think may, because you remember the film for the big shock sequence, especially the big shock sequence. And, uh, and it is as the twist of the plot come through, it is fun to sit through. Yeah. I mean, the idea that that scene where he rises up out of the bathtub and we visually get to see him remove the contact lens lenses from his eyes, the scene that, it, that, it, that, it, that is so precisely executed that that it, he that they have conspired to know that if they pull this off the right way it will scare her to death and by scaring yeah. someone to death there's no bodily harm it's yeah, al- it's al- al- it's, al- it's it's like not a fingerprint you just scare them to death and that and I, and I wanted to add that I was so impressed even even watching that multiple times as I have the the scare comes from the fact that um Clouseau has set up so much information and only revealed so much to us that the, at the very moment when when he starts rising out of the tub, the camera pulls back, and this is this isn't the zooming this isn't the lens zooming out. This is actually a, the camera tracking backwards, mm-hmm. as if it's a, a visual revelation of all the information, and we're seeing it from her point of view, and it just it sort of hits you. Of course, it's 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 designed for maximum impression. You say what you want about the new wave and their condemnation of Clouseau, they had to admire these, 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 um, his, his ability to do stuff technically. He was a master at that. He may have been, you know, a master at that, but then the new wave would say he wasn't an innovator. He was technically proficient. Yeah, that's, yeah, so he was, he was definitely old school. And, uh, and yep, they didn't, they still liked, uh, the films of Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, Mm. And the early Louis Maul, uh, Elevator to the Gallows, or Frantic, whatever. Well, David, let me ask you this. Where do you side? You love the new wave. Yeah. But at the same time, do you think they were fair to the older generation? Not entirely. Uh, but it is true. There were films like Gervais with Maria Schell. Oh, my God. It's like going to see, you know, you know, Coco Chanel and Stravinsky now. It's just like awful stuff. And, um, yeah, they were, they, were, they were revolutionary. And uh, that was not part of what Clouseau was. Um, what I kind of like, it's sort of like when you get to, uh, say, shoot the piano player mm-hmm. or uh, Breathless, and you have these sort of like bumbling cops. One of the things that I think is essential to understanding I think there is a lot of irony in, in some way, a macabre humor. I mean, it's, it's just that scene with the, the, the bathtub scene. It's just one of those great scenes where you scream, you clutch your loved one, and, uh, and then there's sort of like, at least in the theaters that I remember, a sort of a, 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 sort of a nervous laughter, attention afterwards. What I really like is the character of... Well, there's a lot of things I like about the film. There's the character of the detective. Uh, the oh, Charles, Charles Vanel uh, character. Fichet. Uh, yeah. And he... Um, um, Charles Vanel's character. Uh, he... Um, here he is. You've, how many... Just don't forget, a lot of French films, people knew, okay, we always had detectives. He had all, the, all, all, all these films being made from, you know, 
various detective novels. You know what's funny though, David? He just appears like all of a sudden. This this detective gets into the, you know, gets into the car with Christine, and here's he's here to solve this as as if he has like has some extra sense to know that something is just generally wrong. It's and of course, completely he's, improbable. He, he, but we accept it. Of course, you know, he Clouseau has created this environment that all of these improbable things are are allowed. We accept it. But he's sort of on to something. There's more going on here than meets the surface. And what's interesting about him, he's sort of rumping. He doesn't he don't believe in him. He's certainly no Inspector Clouseau, but he's a, a different kind of Clouseau. But you know that his character, you talk about how this film got into some mainstream theaters. Mm. His character was the inspiration for uh, Peter Falk's Columbo. I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Columbo is largely based on this, uh, the character. I mean, the inspiration, not largely based, but the inspiration for it. They modeled the sort of rumpled uh, Peter Falk with, you know, his sort of like, he he catches on to more than what we do as members of the audience. And, you, you know, that's, that's, that's a kind of an... A guy who can problem solve casually. Yeah. And get the job done for someone as as uh, Detective Frechet does here. Like he's the opposite, say, of yeah. like Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. Uh, who he comes in, he's sort of like, no, he's going to get him. We're all going to explain to it by the at the end of the at the end of the film anyway. So part of what goes on here, I think, in the film is our wait a minute. He's on to something, and he he doesn't get ruffled, and uh, and, and uh, he seems to just appear at the right time, though. Yeah, you know, on a couple of occasions. As if he senses something that uh, here they are, they've gone to the plot is so carefully worked out. Uh, but maybe because it's so carefully worked out, I mean, I, I you know, he, he said, uh, there's something amiss here. But his character, I think, is kind of interesting. And, and um, my, I mean, like, Wages of Fear is so intense. And I can't remember humor in the Raven, mm-hmm. but here there's a playfulness. We do there. There is, and I think that the, that Clouseau establishes that with the with the couple in the apart that live above the apartment. Mm-hmm. The, that they have a um, they sort of have this inquisitiveness about what's going on beneath them. You know that they, that the, the two ladies have. Um, so in these moments of unrestricted knowledge in, in Diabolique, and there aren't many, there's just a couple, we are introduced to the couple that lives upstairs, and we think that, oh, they might accidentally stumble across the, uh, the body that the two women are trying to hide. And it's funny. You know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, and, and the importance of humor in a thriller is, I can't even put a value on it. It's, it's, it's a master it's, of that it's kind of thing. absolutely necessary and so many filmmakers today could learn from this they that they and i've said this time and time again that that in in horror movies and we've seen a ton of them and a lot of them have failed because they just don't come up for air it's as if it's as if humor is something that's going to break the tension but these but so many great horror films films considered horror films or thriller thrillers have lots of humor and we love these characters for it I can name, you know, you, you, Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, Aliens. Uh, these these films that are supposedly somewhat, you know, horror involved have a large amount of humor. Well, I regard Psycho, which and is Psycho. Of course, as as yeah. a comedy, a dark it's comedy. A, it's as if but the it movie has to be self. It has to. It's it's just like the filmmakers are saying to the audience, "We know 
what we're trying to do and you know we can have some we 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 can we can take time out for a breather and have fun with it too and it just makes the characters more human to the audience more relatable the only hitchcock film that um uh that is unrelentingly bleak is the closest he ever came to documentary uh the wrong man with henry fonda and vera miles and uh it was also one of his least successful at the box office Hmm. um but it's a true story and, of course, The Wrong Man is one of Hitchcock's classic themes uh, throughout all of his career. I think there were 27 out of his 50-some-odd films that, that had some aspect of The Wrong Man in it. And so he makes the film that really, really announces this. And the film is a little bit hard to sit through. Hmm. And uh, the uh, it's not that it's not a bad film. It's just hard to sit through. You know, I keep getting back to the idea that Clouseau may have bested Hitchcock at his own game when Hitchcock was at the top. When Hitchcock was at the top of his game, and that there might have been some uh, envy there. There might have been some, uh, if there is such a thing as competition between filmmakers, something going on. There. That may have been. That that I don't know. I mean, I don't see. Uh, also, I think that there were things that Clouseau could do that Hitchcock couldn't do because Hitchcock was working in America. Right. And Clouseau had... And Hitchcock always found sort of ways of subverting the censors. Uh, I mean, even in North by Northwest, at the end when Cary Grant pulls even Marie Saint up into the upper bunk or whatever it is, uh, and, uh, and then the next shot is a train going through a tunnel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it <laughs> wouldn't be filmed that way today. You know, uh, you actually touched on something. Is, uh, is uh, Clouseau's ability to stage the space in in this film is really neat it's, uh, the way the way he tell the way he goes from uh, uh close-up shots and, and then he just kind of pans the camera over and you've got tunnels you've got you've got uh, darkened spaces and you know we're never really shown the real um how the interior of the school works out so it's still sort of you know uh a mystery but did, did you get the, the did you sort of notice how uh, towards the beginning of the film it was it was very detailed and it, and it was lighter. There was lots of uh, you know in the scene right before uh, uh, Maurice uh, rapes Christina, that foyer room that that uh, I, I I don't know what to call the name of the room. It's just it's just lit in such an intricate way. And then ninety minutes later on in the movie, everything has just come down to it's just like this darkened. Uh, version of German expressionism mm-hmm. to say that something really important, you know, is about to happen. So it's just like it's like the movie became a little more streamlined as it progressed. Um, the, uh, you you recall the scenes where uh, we were getting a real sense of the uh, entrapment mm-hmm. that the women were under, uh, insofar as even the food that they were being served. Uh, the rationing of the wine in the um, uh, in in the dinner scenes is is this like this? You'd mentioned sort of the interior decrepitness mm-hmm. of this of these scenes. Uh, can you like is is there anything else in any other film that you can liken this to that really shows the depravity of what's going on in the in at the in in the heart of this school, which is supposedly supposed to be this great school for kids? Yeah, which is one of the things I always have the had a problem with that. The uh, irony of it. Said, People would send their kids to this school. Exactly. And why would they do this? It's it's as if they're aloof or and there's oblivious. no social context for it. Yeah, you know. Um, nor is it kept, nor does it really have a place. You sort of like say, oh, this is not where I would want to send my kid. But who it's knows? In, a, in a way, it's sad. It's it's sort of um, 
uh, an interior decrepitness. And in the way they treat Well, there the are kids. other directors that do that kind of thing, but I can't think of anything in what I know of Clouseau's work that he would have played attention to that kind of, that kind of detail. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think some were concerned that this was representing uh, making a statement about France at the time, and it wasn't. It was, it was it's it's just a, a a story element. Well, there are films that you know both by um, Renoir and uh, Marcel Carnet that where like for example in the beginning of Grand Illusion where the camera just does like a almost three hundred sixty degree pan around the room mm -hmm. where Eric von Stroheim's uh, is in you know all about him. Uh, before you even meet his character, because you can see by the stuff that's in his room. That, that it's it's a very revealing camera move. It's what De Palma does when he's when in yeah. introducing characters or when characters are going through some sort of visual turmoil. We we we, yeah. we get them from all angles, and you know, and that's you know often you know, and of course De Palma's of that generation of people who grew up loving film. Uh, and he would have seen all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, Renoir's rules of the game, similarly, especially with the ballroom scene, which influenced, so heavily influenced uh, Orson Welles with Magnificent Ambersons, which mm -hmm. is another great use of, of a certain kind, you know, like, like detail. Uh, and so it was in the uh, air. Whether a, it's, a detailed realism. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's hard to know with Clouseau to what extent. It, it was just like, it, it was an approach to filmmaking. Uh, he paid attention to uh, art direction and sex direction. I mean, the, the big film for all of this uh, was the one that was made while Paris was still occupied, Children of Paradise, which was made um, in, what, 1944, and is this opulent film, three hours long, and yet the the where they got all of the stuff to recreate a period piece uh, is amazing. So it certainly would it would have been the kind of thing, because one of the things the French New Wave reacted against, a lot of what had preceded them were really faithfully done versions of classic novels. And uh, they had a lot of studio resources. And so, again, in the air was an attention to a kind of faithful detail and yeah, recreating I think there was also atmosphere. a lot of resentment. Well, that's they it. didn't have access to And, of course, you don't have any of that with the French New Wave, of course. They didn't have the the money that these other films had. Do you had. think that there was a little too much recrimination? Uh, do you think that there was a little too much anger towards um, Clouseau and that perhaps hurt his career? Not individually uh, career? directed. Um, and there are a lot of ways that anger... There's a film... Oh, what was his name? Um, uh, uh, when Jacques, Jacques Dauphine? No, this is, this is a, a director um, who, when Truffaut made Wild Child... There's a director, oh God, I'm blanking on his name, who made in 1948 made a film that had almost the identical themes of Wild Child. And and why did Truffaut? Why was he one of these directors on the bad? I mean, on the on the bad list. And what is interesting with you know when you're getting into the French New Wave, uh, when Truffaut goes on to make Day for Night, and there's a film within a film. And Truffaut is making a film called I Want You to Meet Pamela. It's the kind of film that nobody who was a member of the French New Wave would ever have made. It was an old-fashioned kind of film that would be so boring. It would be the, it, it, the film that Truffaut is trying to make in Day for Night mm. is the kind of film that nobody in the French New Wave would have ever wanted to make. But no, the, like, and these directors who sort of 
you know, like say Chabrol, for example, or Louis Malle. You know, there are a lot of good French movies came out of the detective novels of uh, Georges Simenon, excuse my pronunciation. And they were, and they certainly dealt with moral ambiguity, and you have the films of Jean Pierre yeah, Melville, but she wrote in that. Of, uh, Rafifi. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, that was by an American, but uh, the, because uh, uh, Jules de Sand, he was, uh, it was sort of funny because he made things like, uh, oh, one of the, along with the asphalt jungle, it was uh, uh, Naked City in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, um, Back when his name was, he was known when he was making movies in the United States as Julie Dassin. He was an American. And uh, then he got blacklisted and went to Europe and he made a movie like Rififi. And, uh, and now it's Jules Dassin. So he was Julie Dassin in the United States. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, but Rififi was a terrific thriller. Um, and it's still noted for the way. Um, well, you know, the, the the whole thing is done in the absence of music and dialogue. You know, the big the big robbery, mm-hmm. magnificently shot. Well, I think that it benefited from uh, uh, the, the the success of uh, uh, Diabolique in America. And that, that well, helped American pave, the, um, pave the way. And it had that single title, even though the real mm-hmm. title is Lady uh, Diabolique, yeah. which um, is sort of, you know, they translate that, The Devils. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was originally titled The Women. Was it really? Yeah. Well, it's before, funny because before he switched over. As it was marketed in the United States, it was diabolique. Yeah. There was no. And of course, for me anyway, the maybe the sense of fun, the diabolical fun, uh, mm-hmm. is in there. And then that, because the, the spirit in which I took the three women to the movies in rapid succession was. Um, yeah, you got to see this one. It's going to be great fun. Uh, <laughs> That's the selling point of this film. Even after you've seen it the first time, you watch it the second time, it's more like a science. But, but for the first time, you go for the thrill. Yeah, you do. And then what you do is drag other people so you can watch them go through the thrill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and maybe my own motives were slightly... That's why I, Sarah well. hasn't seen it yet, and I'm excited to show it to Sarah. And, and as I uh, was watching it before... Uh, uh, talking with you, I had made sure that she was not in the room because <laughs> just anything about the ending of this film would have just like blown it for her. And I love the marketing thing that they do. You know, don't be devils. Don't share the ending yeah. of this film with anybody who might be interested in it. Right. So I hope we didn't spoil it too much for anybody who's listening. We can watch <laughs> we The Crash with Ship because both Steve and I have watched it multiple times and we've enjoyed it multiple times. And I'm going to watch it again because, I mean, I... I just, you learn, it's one of those things you learn something from each time you watch it. Like the first two times I'd seen this film, I did not get that it was Nicole at the typewriter. I I didn't, I didn't see the the sort of the, uh, the chess game that's going on behind the wall and there's still more stuff to be revealed. And that's just funny. It is is a great, it is a diabolical thriller because you get into the motives of each of the three characters, three leading characters. And that's why I sort of, think that in the detective's character, a one-on-one, arm, e- e- even though we think we can, we're following things the, for the detective, one-on-one don't make two here. Something, something's going on, and, um, and we don't know what it is that he thinks. Again, unlike, say, Chinatown, you were talking mm-hmm. about restrictive uh, and non-restrictive, whereas 
in Chinatown, we never, under any circumstances, know any more than what Jack Nicholson knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never have that. And, and um, Hitchcock was always a pretty good master of keeping information. I mean, yeah, well, that's one of the things that a, a great director uh, does. Uh, well, of course, people will say there's there's lots of things that dir- great directors do. But what a director has at their disposal is the debil- the ability to reveal a certain amount of information. You know, a certain amount of in- information to establish the narrative of the film. And one of these ways they do this, the main, like a main way, is through restricted information. And Clouseau is a master at the restricted information angle. And that's what's so entertaining about Diabolique. It breaks through that a couple of times, just to, you know, Hitchcock breaking through it is letting us know that there's a gun under the table. Uh, uh, Clouseau breaking through it is letting us know that outside the relationship of the two women, this. A sleazy guy is on a train ogling a girl next to his mom. You know, there's a few, there's a few little reveals, but, but I think what uh, Diabolique is is taught me is about the power of restricted information. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's a magnificent. I mean, it's it's a film. You know, like everybody, you know, in North by Northwest, film students are always taught the the scene, the 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 scene in the field. Where here's this man in the gray flannel suit out there in this um, dusty road. The irony of it. But we never get we get that initial irony. But whereas other directors would cut to a shot from the people who are doing, you know, flying the plane, mm-hmm. this never happens there. It's like in in Rear Window in, with Hitchcock. We never cut to a scene, even when Grace Kelly goes into Raymond Burr's mm-hmm. apartment. We never cut to something she might see. It's just, it's, it's all it's from the telescope in a way, and yeah. it has a wonderful effect. David, thanks for talking with me again. It's been fun. I really appreciate it. Just want to remind everyone really quickly that Criterion has released Diabolique on Blu-ray, and it looks fantastic. Plus, they've got some great extra features on there, so you'll definitely want to check it out. Just go to Criterion.com.